My songs are of a make and model that I had to push them into society. And then I'm delivering them in this kind of hyped, you know, almost shrill way, you know, and (laughs) some people were like, yeah, but most people were going, uh, I don't know. This is freaking me out. Weirds me out. Makes me uncomfortable. I don't like it. And she hates men. And I think she's angry. And then living in clip comes out and I'm not in an awkward recording studio alone. It's a recording of the music just happening organically on stage in its natural habitat. And you can feel me in a way that I think allowed others in, other than the core of outraged, had enough feminists. This is Shiro's, a podcast with a mission to turn up the volume of women's voices in music across genres and generations. Shiro's is a deep dive into the experiences and perspectives of women and gender expansive folks in a still overwhelmingly male-dominated music industry. It's a space where we discuss the challenges and triumphs, how far we've come, and how far we still have to go. Telling our stories is the first step to making music a better space for everyone. My name is Carmel Holt. Each week, we get together to turn up the volume of women's voices in song and conversation. And this week, I have a very special edition of the show for you to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Ani DeFranco's landmark live album, Living in Clip, guest hosted by Tegan and Sarah. And as luck would have it, we're also in the days leading up to the twins' birthday on September 19th and Ani's birthday on September 23rd. And Tegan and Sarah's new TV show based on their memoir, High School, is about to come out. And those were the years where they first encountered Ani DeFranco's music. The way this all came together was nothing short of kismet. And you're about to hear how that came to be and what happened when Tegan and Sarah met their Shiro, Ani DeFranco, for the first time. This is a very special day because I have with me Tegan and Sarah and Ani DeFranco. Let's just set up the background of how and why this is happening today. Tegan and Sarah were kind enough to sit for an interview with me And we were talking about their story, their influences, and gave me a playlist of songs that shaped them as people and as musicians. And I was thrilled as hell to see Napoleon by Ani DeFranco on this playlist. And then we had a moment talking about why that was on the playlist. And then I think it was Tegan who said, yeah, you know, I love that song and I love that album, but for me, and I think really for us, it was living in clip. Like that was the one. So then we have a whole conversation around that. We listen to Napoleon from Dilate. And then they reveal we've never met Ani DeFranco. 25 years, never met her. So the next day I get an email from Ani's publicist or radio person saying, I would love to get the two of you together, you and Ani, to talk about living in (laughs) clip, the 25th anniversary, yada, yada. And I was like, I'll tell you what would be way better than me talking to Ani DeFranco about living in Clip. And so then I reached back out to Tegan and Sarah and they said yes. And here we are. It's like magic. Wouldn't (laughs) wouldn't it be a funny, unexpected twist of this whole thing is that we're Ani DeFranco's publicist. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for making this occasion for us to actually sort of meet two-dimensionally. Virtually, yeah. Because it's been way too long. It's weird. 
really, that our paths haven't crossed. It is actually strange because we did festival circuits for years. We have toured primarily in the States. And so you would just think that at some point we would have crossed paths. And I think I put this in the email that I wrote to you when Sarah and I were writing our memoir and we write about you in the book. And, and for so many years, we felt kind of almost mortified that we were constantly compared to you, not because we were mortified to be compared to you, but because we're like, poor Ronnie DeFranco is probably out there if she even <laughs> knows who we are. And it's like, stop <laughs> comparing those bitches to me. You know, like, I just was like, like, and now that we're in our forties, younger artists, up and coming artists get compared to us. And I have the reverse. Like, I'm not like, Ugh, I wish they would stop getting compared to us. It's the same thing. Like, I'm like, oh no, they're always getting compared to us. I wonder if they hate that. <laughs> I can so relate. And I was thinking when you were saying, that, yeah, we played all the same kinds of festivals and this and that. But I bet it was because like, oh, no, we don't need one of those because right. we have two of them. We, we right. have two of those, so we don't need her. And, you know, that's why we're never on the same yeah. stage on the same day. Actually, do you know we what? We did Fuji? play the same was festival. It Fuji? I was just uh, going to say, was it Fuji? Yeah. Fuji Fest in We Japan. did. We were, yeah. And it was like the beginning of our career. I mean, I want to say it was like 2000. Tegan and I had just kind of started to get our professional sea legs. And the two big things that we got offered was we got a last minute booking on David Letterman. And then after David Letterman, we flew to Japan to play Fuji Rock Fest. And it was like very intimidating trip. We felt very unqualified for. Mm -hmm. And I remember we were so excited you were on the bill. But we didn't play the we same didn't day. Play the same day, but we saw the lineup and we were like telling all of our friends from high school, you will not believe what we're about to go do. We're about to go see Ani DeFranco and Billy Corgan, like as if we were just going to be like sitting in the living room with both of you. <laughs> and we did not see your set. I think we saw you in the hotel. We didn't come oh, up wow. to you, but we did see you and we were like, oh my God, there she is. <laughs> like we were, you were like our star sighting. Didn't we take a photo? I don't know who was drumming for you then, but we took a photo. It was wow. a guy with blonde hair. I have a photo of it. Darren. That yeah. would have been Darren, Han. That's so cute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We are such stalkers. Like we were really, really like starstruck. And that was like a part of our career where, you know, it all felt very surreal. And I would love to know this about your own experience, but there's that moment where you're on the other side of the line, you know, like where you're just listening to music and then suddenly you're a musician and there's like this imposter syndrome, mm. which I don't feel like I've actually completely gotten right. rid of yet after 25 years. But, you know, we were really having imposter syndrome. Like, wait a second, how are we in Japan? And that is Ani DeFranco in the hotel lobby. Yeah, yeah. Well, apropos of this occasion, I think that moment for me was pretty much living in clip coming out. Don't ask me why I'm crying. I'm not gonna tell you what's wrong. I'm just gonna sit on your lap for five dollars a song. I want you to pay me for my beauty. I think it's only right. Letter to a John of Ani DeFranco's Living in Clip. You're listening to a special edition of Shiro's Radio, celebrating the 25th anniversary of that album, guest hosted by Tegan and Sarah. I was sort of doing whatever I was doing in secret. And then Living in Clip changed that, and there was that dizzying shift from bars to Fujifest and suddenly you're yeah. like, whoa, <laughs> this is different. When you say that everything changed or that, you know, something clicked with Living In Clip, I'm curious, just as a super fan of that album, do you remember when that album <clears throat> came out, what it was that sort of set everything in motion? Yeah, wasn't radio, <laughs> still ain't. <laughs> I think 
that my studio albums up to that point were, you know, dicey territory for the uninitiated. I think for certain people who had like minds and like experiences and understood where I was coming from, mostly other young women, young queer people, you know, to generalize, they were tapping into what I was doing. But I think just the way that I recorded my early records in, you know, little dumpy studios in Buffalo and then Toronto, but just alone in these very uncomfortable environments, you know, with metalhead dudes, like looking at me like, (laughs) ew, uh, you know, and my songs are kind of of a make and model that I had to push them into society. And then I'm delivering them in this kind of hyped, you know, almost shrill way, you know, and <laughs> some people were like, yeah, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> but most people were going, uh, I don't know. This is freaking me out. Weirds me out. Makes me uncomfortable. I don't like it. And she hates men. And I think she's angry. And then living in clip comes out and I'm not in an awkward recording studio alone. It's a recording of the music just happening organically on stage in its natural habitat. And you can feel me, I think, Mm -hmm. and where the songs are coming from in a way that I think allowed others in other than the core of outraged, had enough feminists. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I think the way that the same songs, I mean, some of them may have been unrecorded yet, but same songs, same singer, but the context, I think, allowed people in, in a way that those Mm -hmm. early records were more forbidding. It's interesting because I felt, oh, sorry, sorry. No, no, go for it, Dean. So polite. So <laughs> We never so, speak to each yeah, other that yeah. way, Ani. It's for you. <laughs> I was going to say, so polite for Ani. Oh, excuse me, sister. Please, you go ahead. Yes, it's your turn. Yeah. That sounds fair. Well, I wanted to say two things like about living in Clip. And it is really interesting because Sarah and I had a copy of Not a Pretty Girl and Dilate. I think we even had out of range at this point when living in Clip came out because a girl we had in one of our classes had given it to us. And she was like, you guys kind of remind me of Bonnie DeFranco. You love her. And I think she's the one that gave us one of those albums. But either way, it was interesting for me, the effect that living in Clip had on me wasn't so much that, oh, you seemed softer or wittier or funnier because you sure like maybe all those things were there but for me what struck me especially as a young woman but also as an aspiring artist and performer was hearing the audience and you said something when you were just talking about living in clip but you were talking about like it made more people feel like they could be a part of it and I suppose that's probably some of the magic of a live album is that there is actually something psychological about hearing a crowd of people cheer laugh enjoy themselves it makes you want to be a part of it and there was something so striking about hearing the first handful of songs off of living in clip when my mom bought it for us and we brought it home it was like Like even now I'm getting goosebumps. We felt like we were a part of it. You know, pre-social media and pre-internet, I think a lot of people, especially these days, young people, you can know exactly what to expect when you go see a concert because of their social media, you get to know their world, their personality. But back in the day, all we had was your music. We knew nothing. We had the copy of Spin that you were on the cover of taped up on the wall and had read the article a thousand times, but that was it. Like that's all we knew about you. And so to hear Living in Clip, it was like all of a sudden... Not only did you welcome us into that world and that concert experience and that audience with all these people, but it was like we got this personality of who you were. And that in conjunction with 
hearing the kind of crowd it was because we'd grown up listening to all the like stadium rock, you know, Bruce Springsteen, U2, like those live albums and could literally like repeat every story word for word of those artists. But the crowd sound, the swell was so powerful, but it was male sounding. And there was something about living in clip because it was, it was so clear that so much of the audience was made up of women. Yeah. It was so cool. Like it just felt mm. so cool and different. You think I wouldn't have him unless I could have him by the balls? I think I'd just dish it out. You don't think I'd take it at all? You think I'm stronger? You think I walk taller than the rest? You think I'm usually wearing the pants just cause I rarely wear a dress? Well. A live version of I'm No Heroine by Ani DeFranco from Living in Clip. She's our guest this week on Shiro's Radio in conversation with guest hosts Tegan and Sarah to celebrate its 25th anniversary. You can put yourself there, right Mm -hmm. in the middle of the scene and the community. One thing that was startling about me at the time was that there weren't a lot of women who were singing to other women. Like Mm. there was a a subset of like dyke and you'd be put Mm. in women's music in the back corner of the store, you Mm -hmm. know, and that was the only context that you could imagine a woman directing a song at another woman. The male gaze was so subliminally in front of everyone all the time. And that's Mm -hmm. what we all played to. And that's what you had to look a certain way for. And that's whose approval you were trying to get. And that was all just sort of assumed. And then there was like this palpable thing that I could discern along the way at my shows where I could have conversations with other young women in the room and It was a direct conversation and Mm -hmm. I was beaming out. I don't give a what it looks like or sounds like (laughs) to you or what you think about it. And Mm -hmm. there was something really liberating about that dynamic. It took decades of living on the earth to feel that sort of shift around me as well. Like have just these moments that are hard to articulate, but where I cross another woman on the street passing and we say, hey, in a way that is enough. That's everything, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and not just at a dike bar trying to pick each other up or something, but that we see each other in our full humanity. And that's all we're doing right now is us. It's not about playing to the male gaze. It's so amazing as you're saying that, because I've never thought about it in this perspective, but one of the things that probably really blew our minds listening to Living in Clip was that we had not heard a conversation between a woman and the audience that didn't involve performing for the male gaze. Like, I don't think we would have had that language or that infrastructure in our minds, but I had heard Bruce Springsteen stand in front of a stadium and tell a story about his dad or talking in a phone booth to a girl or like, you know, whatever. But your conversation with the audience felt flirtatious. It felt personal. It felt like you were saying, I see you. I hear you. I say something, you respond. I respond to you responding. And I remember the reciprocity of that was not something that I had heard. And I, at the time, wouldn't have understood how much we were like embodying that. (laughs) But like 
Living in Clip is to me an instructive album. It is an instructive album about how to be with your audience, how to be with your people, how to be respectful as a performer. And again, I don't know that Tegan and I understood that we were learning from you, but we were. And we were such open receiving at that moment because we were just like literally on the precipice of starting our own career in the void of 1990s. And so we were just like, oh my God, here's the one textbook that we can follow because the rest of it doesn't apply to us. So listening to you, the way you spoke, the way that you played for the audience, the way that you interacted with them, the way that they interacted with you, but also what you would share with the audience. Going back to the Bruce Springsteen thing, these are these like giant, almost fables that he's telling. And it's like, wow, like goosebumpy, amazing. And you're just like, yeah, we couldn't get to the city last night. We had to sleep in a college dorm room. Like that was mind-blowing. Like we hear that now all the time. Like that's the language of the culture now, but I had never heard. To me, you were like a huge famous rock star telling it like it was. We were supposed to be in this town sleeping soundly in beds with toilets really nearby. And, um, but, but, uh, but what? No, instead we were in, we were in the uh, study room in a dormitory at the University of Chicago. <laughs> ah, we were having a little slumber party. <laughs> it was like, it, I mean, it was either that or sleep, you know, at the gate in the airport. So, so we decided, well, the study room. And it was so funny because there we were in, in Chicago, right? And everybody was in Chicago and they could check out any time they liked, but they could never leave. I just was like, oh, you can do that. Like, you don't have to have some like profound story about your dad that you have to like come up with and make 75,000 people cry. <laughs> like, that's cool too. And that can happen. But like, you can also just tell people we had to sleep in a college dorm room last night. Do you even remember having an idea of what you were doing when you were doing Living in Clip that it would be so instructive and so different and unique? I mean, I think I had the instinct to talk to audiences like they were just my best friend and we were alone. (laughs) And I think that might have been an instinct, not that it was so strategic or calculated, but I had to make people comfortable because I was Mm going to lay some down and I was going to (laughs) show the thing that you can't show as a female anger. I was going to talk about subjects that are uncomfortable and that you don't talk about. And I was going to use words that don't belong in songs. So I think I definitely subliminally always had the strategy. Mm -hmm. And I learned that from my mom early on, which was very helpful, I think, in my career of how to walk into a room and make everybody comfortable and even sometimes say ridiculous things or meaningless things or not true things because they're the funny thing or they're the thing that's going to put the other person at ease and sabotaging myself to put the other person at ease. And I definitely had a focus on, let me make you as comfortable as possible and you won't even see the needle go in, you know? (laughs) (laughs) No, just birdie, birdie. (laughs) But as you were talking, I was wondering... Because I've been doing it ever since, you know, right. S- still talking to everybody, even in social media world, which is new to my old crusty ass, really, you know, <laughs> in terms of how I learned the game, still just putting myself out there as though I'm talking to my best friend who inherently understands me and where I'm coming from. This, as it happens, is not true of everyone in the world. And so I've run into issues with this way of engaging people misunderstandings, my irreverence, 
It's yeah. hard to talk yeah, to I the mean, world yeah. like they're your best friend and get away with it, especially now. And I was wondering how that's working out for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, like, I think one of the things in re-listening to living in clip from the beginning all the way through, because first of all, it's just absolutely mind boggling. There was not one song I didn't remember or recognize, but also how many of the songs are just so well-written and so good. Like this was so early in your career. It's really, really amazing. Like your craft was so honed when you were so young. It's truly epic. But one of the things I was struck by was how you juxtapose these really, really intense songs and these really deep and at times probably very uncomfortable themes on stage with the humor. And that is something Sarah and I also do. And we are the first people to admit that we walk in a room and we will make you like us. And we spent a decade opening for everyone from, you know, Neil Young to Rufus Wainwright to Ryan Adams to Brian Adams to Nelly Furtado to Joan Osborne. Like, I mean, we opened for Paramore. We opened for Katy Perry. Like we took opening gigs and cut our teeth in that way because we were basically like, if we could stand on these stages, like if I can get on stage before the Black Keys or the Killers in Scotland and they don't boo us off the stage, then my audience is going to seem really easy. And part of how we would win people over was humor and telling stories about our lives and, you know, bantering with each other because it would disarm people because whether you understood us as women, as feminists, as queer people, you probably knew a woman, I would assume. And so there was something about like the two of us bantering as sisters, you know, it was like anyone in the audience could go, yeah, family. Okay. Sisters. Yeah. I have a sister or my friend has a sister, you know? So we really would play up the sister thing and banter and tease one another. And to answer your question, it's going fine, but it is part of the trap we set for ourselves that like, we cannot get on stage and just play a set from start to finish. We cannot rock star all over the place. You know, we're definitely not like knee sliding around with our wireless mics, you know, pointing at the audience, giving all the like smiles and giggles. Like we do have to insert a lot of who we are into the show. And I mean, I'm glad for that. It's helped us sustain ourselves for a long time, but it's interesting to hear you saying what you're saying, because I imagine as an artist, as diverse as you, who has evolved and changed from record to record, you refuse to be trapped. And, but there is this element of who you are now. And this album really is the top, the peak of that, where it just became synonymous with who you are as an artist. And it must feel exhausting sometimes to have to still be that person, not in a bad way, but like, just like, dude, to, absolutely. You know, absolutely. I mean, yeah. And I think not a lot of people would understand where you and we would be coming from. Yeah. Like there is absolutely an expectation since the early days, since I set it up, of you have to remove every single veil. You have to come mm -hmm. naked or we'll be mad, you know? Yeah. And that's mm -hmm. why we're here. We're here to see you buck ass naked. You know, it was funny when you were talking, I opened for Brandy Carlisle the other day ah, and cool. she's amazing. Mm -hmm. I had never seen her live. What a great operation. What a great, solid, all good people on a scale that's hard to do. I know. So I was really impressed with the vibe and the peeps and the scene. And I noticed she's on stage in front of 10,000 people chatting it up. Telling mm -hmm. goofy little stories. And I was just forming a theory when you were talking of women and how our strength, I think, is the true kind, which involves vulnerability, risk, and doing exactly what we're talking about, removing every veil and just really being vulnerable in front of an audience as opposed to like playing it cool, doing the rock, start doing that more 
guarded, safe persona where you can just lean into the mystery of yourself or something is now (laughs) off the table because we've already shown that we're willing to be vulnerable in front of everybody. And now if like, if you don't go there, you're holding back. Yeah. It's interesting that you brought up the connection of social media now and how it certainly puts us under more scrutiny as artists and people who are willing to go there. And you have to be so much more, you know, careful. And, you know, so it adds like a new trapping or a new layer of concern or worry. But it's funny because I was listening to Living in Clip this morning and there's a section where you're talking about how your fans are giving you a hard time because your music is not about politics anymore. It's about love. And what happened to your politics? And you're, you know, what are you just going to sell out and be like, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and is this a, is this a conscious move away from overly political songwriting? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like... No, man, it's like, it's just, I got kind of distracted. (laughs) It was actually making me think about how audiences themselves are so complicated. You know, I think that we speak very broadly these days as performers, expressing gratitude for these audiences is so important. Our communities are, however you want to define the people who come out and see your shows or listen to your music, who are populating your social media accounts. Again, as women, we especially have to be like really gracious. We cannot be critical of them while they are always being critical of us. And not to be like, woe is me. And Tegan is better at balancing this. I have been often a little bit more guarded and pulled back from our fan base because I found the scrutiny and the criticism. Well, it just made me mad. You know, like even even when we were like in our 20s, like I can remember at the very, 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 very beginning of social media, just even getting off stage and having someone standing out in the alley next to the van and being like, why didn't you play this? Or I remember a girl once saying to me, why'd you play the show with your eyes closed? It'd be nice if you could connect with us every once in a while. And I was like, oh my God, start your own band and like (laughs) toothpick open your eyes. Okay. Like I don't care what you do. (laughs) I love that you brought that up, Sarah, because that really stuck out to me when I was re-listening as well, that comment. And I'm curious, how did you get feedback? Like, so there you are during the living in clip era, you're doing all these (laughs) concerts, recording them. Tegan by uh, like, it would be like a scroll. The fans would write it down on a scroll with ink. Yeah, no, it's a good question, right? What was the world before social media? (laughs) Like how did people bust your balls about writing love songs? Well, I put an address snail mail baby on the first tape and that address stayed the first 10 years at least but people wrote freaking letters all the time lots (laughs) of letters and then also at the shows letters Mm -hmm. manifestas you know come over to my house for homemade porn and herbal tea you know (laughs) you know just a nightmare here's my picture of my dog that just died and the people Mm. that were between you and your bed every night after the show and that would leap in front of the van you know i mean they were coming 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 (laughs) They would find a way. And so when you started to receive that criticism, because I will say like as a band that never really wrote politically, but because we were queer and we were women, we just got lumped into like folk and political. And it was always confusing to us because we were like, well, we're just literally just writing songs about love. So when you made that shift and all of a sudden started to explore that writing and you started to receive that feedback of people feeling betrayed or feeling confused by this new era of your life. How did you process it and and what did you make of it? 
I got upset and mad like you did a lot for years. And then after a certain number of years and being reminded again and again, like, right, you want me to do this. You want me to do that. You want me to do the other. Even if I tried to be who you individual person needed me to be, was insisting I should be or stay. I just realized, okay, I got to put distance between myself and what people are projecting onto me. Mm. You know, it's, as I'm sure you know, such an interesting relationship when they say, I love you, and yet they're tramping all over you and your needs, (laughs) and they will attack you if you aren't providing what they love of you. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just realizing I have to not take all that personally. When somebody yells sell out because I'm wearing something femi or sell out because I wrote a love song or whatever the criticism of the day is, like you gotta fright. You just learn those ninja moves. It's taken me more recent in life where, right, okay, in order to be somewhat more immune to that hyper-criticism and the sort of thoughtlessness of critics whatever form they come in, you actually have to put space between you and the adulation and the affirmation. You got to get that from inside yourself, Ani. You can't keep (laughs) getting it from outside yourself because that's the same door that the critics Mm. come in and stick the knife through. Mm. So, right, right. I have to believe in myself whether or not people cheer. That, you know, the next phase Mm -hmm. of actually not taking it all personally It's such a good point. And not just for, I think, artists and musicians. I think anybody (laughs) right now who's conscious and using social media is probably a good thing to think about as well. But you used the word sellout when you were talking about people lobbing criticism at you. Probably one of my top five Ani DeFranco songs is Napoleon. And I think it's like one of the great industry slapbacks of all time. curious if you feel differently about that song now, if you feel differently about your perspectives on selling out. I can remember Tegan and I were like just coming out of the 90s when we were getting out of high school and selling out was really transforming, right? Like it had gone from being this thing that no one wanted to do to kind of being like a doggy pile, like everyone wanted to sell out. It was like, oh my God, show me the money, you know? So we were part of that real like sea change in the industry. But anyways, I'm just curious if you want to talk a little bit about Napoleon because I'm just a dork and I love that Mm. song so much. I mean, I used to cling to my feeling of righteousness about my path because it was hard to keep choosing that every day. Mm -hmm. You know, I just had so many experiences over the course of so many years of an archetypical young female singer songwriter opens for Ani in small bar in Guelph. One year later, said female is top of the charts all over the magazines. Ani 
Johnny's back in the bar in Guelph, you know, like, (laughs) and I saw certain paths and potentials playing out and blooming around me and just knowing subliminally, like, yeah, I could go with a label and I could get the team of professionals to shine my shit up and make it more accessible and help me, really. I'm not the best mixer, producer, but damn it, I was just fine. And I don't know what to do with myself or how to make an image (laughs) or... (laughs) <laughs> and stick with it. Or even as an artist and as a human, some are better at really understanding that connection point and work in it, you know? Mm-hmm. And others are like, oh, what was working? I don't know. I'm just doing And like, <laughs> somebody tell me. No, 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 no. I always wish I had a groomer. You know, like, eh, no, not that. This. Just put on this. But somebody that was helping me be me. I think that's super interesting to hear you say that because again, back to just how profoundly good living in clip is at showcasing your music to date at that point in your career. And I am the gross vacuum salesman in our band. And so I was just thinking when you're like, I don't know, I needed a groomer. It's like, you needed a Tegan is what you needed because (laughs) throughout our career, you know, I am the one that was like, no, we should go open for Paramore. Like, I know that they're a different band than we are, but I saw the connection point of- Mm. So Tegan, you're admitting you're kind of the sellout in our band. Oh, I am the sellout. But but I was going to say, I'm the sellout that says, look, I see the connection point. I thought that was really great how you put that. I've never thought of it that way, but- Uh, What I saw was a profoundly passionate, devoted, committed audience in Paramore's world. And I thought there were probably a lot of parallels. And I knew a lot of queer people and a lot of young women loved them. And I knew Haley. And so I was like, I actually think this would be a really good fit for us. And I know it seems like the Honda Civic Tour. And like, I know it felt weird, but playing country fairs and amphitheaters with a band that their audience would die for them, that sounds like Mm. us just on a very small scale, like Mm -hmm. us, you know? And so I do think there have been certain points in our career where we've been both, like we've been the like, okay, let's grow, let's evolve, let's get it together, what worked, let's make it all make sense. But then I think we have a lot more of what you're describing as you in us too, like where Mm -hmm. every time we have a successful single or album, we immediately make a record that sounds exactly the opposite of it because we refuse to be caged Mm. We refuse to repeat ourselves and we are often kind of grossed out and exhausted by the amount of work and energy that goes into being successful at that level. And I'm not the band that's like, well, if we got to just go back and play that bar to 30 people, we will. No, no, I won't. I don't want to, I, but like, I can't, it's not enough for me. And it's not about Tegan's like, I'll buy the bar in Guelph. She's like, I'm not going to play the bar in Guelph. And I saw that other singer get way too famous after the Guelph yeah. bar. So no. I'm just going to buy the bar in Guelph and work no, on it. Drive the school bus. I, can't, I feel but. like back when I was writing Napoleon, I was much more uppity. I was much more Mm. critical in reverse. Mm -hmm. And I probably would have maybe looked at you at the time in your decision to work that connection point or see an opportunity or be a little strategic and puffed up my chest and said, but yeah, but I'm, you know, but I guess what I would think I was trying to say when you first brought it up, Sarah, is I think I've grown since then. Mm -hmm. I remember when the Dixie Chicks got for saying they shame to be from Texas. And people ask me to speak publicly about comment on that for years. Cause anything that any woman ever did, I was supposed to judge publicly. And, oh, God. and I think back on that. And what bugged me about what happened was the apology that then, you know, the label too, 
dudes, they're not playing. Go apologize. And the fact that she apologized. And I was like, yeah, that sucks. She apologized for being authentically <laughs> you. And But I, I look at my former self now and I think, why would I say that? Why would I criticize mm. some woman who's trying to find her way? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Trying to be authentic, getting hell, getting pressure, getting everyone whose livelihood depends on her, pressuring her to preserve that livelihood and feeling an obligation there too, maybe, you know, and I can look at you and in this conversation and maybe some of the decisions or things you were petitioning for along the way and saying, well, there's a beauty there. Believe in yourself. Mm -hmm. Understand Mm -hmm. that it does take a lot of strategy aligning with a genuine vision, a talent, a spark. Mm -hmm. It has to be all these things for it to really work. And there's so many people out there who have a spark, but can't connect it with anything. So working on that connection point and being strategic, what's wrong with that? What's wrong Mm -hmm. with you advocating for yourself? So I look back I just think because I was choosing an unconventional path and not the more instant gratification, it was hard for me to not be jealous. It was hard for me Mm -hmm. to not be resentful. It was hard for me Hmm. to not sort of lean into being full of myself in order to just sustain that situation. Mm -hmm. Do you know what though? Like, honestly, it's such a great song and I don't even care. You could have been a monster. It doesn't matter to me. It's like sometimes when we're just like feeling anything to the extreme, it's like the best insights come out of that. And I love the idea that that work, that that song, that that feeling exists in the music, but that you can evolve and that you can change. Where Tegan and I were coming from when we discovered living in clip Little Plastic Castle came out when we were in grade 12. And I remember thinking, oh, even again, I'm using language I would never have used then. I wouldn't have known to say this in this way, but it really felt like you were taking a swing to go big. Like you were on the cover of Spin Magazine, I remember. And then Little Plastic Castle sounded more pop to us. Like it sounded cleaner to me. And I'm curious if you took from people. Like, did, did people interpret that as selling out Big after time. a sort of like Little Plastic Castle yeah. was my total sellout. Oh yeah, you it hit so, it on so the head. Good. It's so in good In a though. coffee shop in a city Which is every coffee shop in every city On a day which is every day I picked up a magazine Which is every magazine I read a story then I forgot it right away and they say goldfish have no memory I guess their lives are much like mine and the little plastic castle is a surprise every time and it's hard to say if they're happy but they don't seem much to mind. There's Little Plastic Castle by Ani DeFranco. I'm Carmel Holt. And if you're just joining us, she's our guest on this special edition of She Rose Radio as we celebrate the 25th anniversary of Ani's live album, Living in Clip, with an interview guest hosted by Tegan and Sarah. I had a partner, Goat, who was into filters and delays and we were even messing with that stuff live. And then I go in the studio. Now I have my lover and my best friend to work with who's really creative and has all this new gear. And we're thinking about production on a level that I could never think 
on my own. And so it was more about that synergy, but people definitely read it and, you know, attacked it as a commercial swing. But really it was like, I'm trying to become a record producer. But did you like it? Like, did you like the feeling that there was this heat on you and the album was bigger and you were getting these opportunities? And are you kind of like, oh, this actually feels pretty good to be on the cover of Spin and like, damn, like my shows are getting bigger. Like, are you having that realization in the moment? I don't know. I mean, I think I was more dubious and scared and intimidated. Mm -hmm. You know, I think about the photo shoots that resulted in like magazine covers and I was horrified. I Mm -hmm. went home and sobbed Mm -hmm. after every one because they controlled me and I not wanting to make anybody uncomfortable did what they said. And then I went home and I thought, how gross. I felt like taking a shower with a Brillo pad, you know, just like feeling like the sellout, you know, cause I'm getting sucked into these. And every time I was on TV, I felt that same thing. Like as soon as I sit down in the makeup chair, I leave my body, mm. you know? So none of that ever felt victorious or comfortable. It was hard. That was you- the hardest part for me was the peak. It felt like you were changing the world, just so you know how it <laughs> read to us. Like we- Right, but that doesn't I matter. Rem- like, it really- but it, No, but I just, it felt like you were changing the world. Yeah. I remember thinking it was like an absolute revolution to see you on the cover of Spin. And mm-hmm. I remember thinking, probably because we were just launching our own career, I remember thinking like, well, thank God Ani is doing it because like we wanted to be on the cover of Spin magazine. Like we knew we wanted to do it in a DIY way, but we were not thinking to ourselves like, oh, we just want to like play little clubs and whatever. Like we were, I mean, especially T, and the vacuum salesman, she was like, we're going to be on the cover of Spin Magazine. I mean, everything we did and actually a lot of times still do, but now we have more control, obviously. But we also had that same feeling. I mean, every photo shoot was a trauma. You know, every meeting with a record label was diminishing to our ego and our self-esteem. Every opening tour was like a battlefield. Our most successful eras are the ones that I look back on and see the most damage to our personal Mm. lives, to our relationship as siblings, to the music career we have, to our audience. And this leads to the question that I'm kind of burning in me to ask. And it starts with saying that like one thing Sarah said to me years ago that really resonated was that like the times where we would get really popular for like a moment, like a song would do well or something would happen and the fans, like the diehards, when they would rebel or they would take issue with it, it really would hurt my feelings. But unlike Sarah, I didn't create distance. I would lean in and be like, I don't understand. Like, why wouldn't you want us to be successful? We've been out here hammering away at this for 20 plus years. Like, why wouldn't you be proud of us that we finally got into the mainstream? There's no one like us there. You should be excited to see us there. And Sarah, one time after seeing this ranting and raving so many times said, you know, they're just scared. You think, oh, well, we got accepted in the mainstream. So they get accepted into the mainstream, but they don't. So now they're just by themselves and they see us now as alienated from them them. And it really helped me to understand that that was part of it. So many people coming to our shows looked up to us and saw us as a representation of them. And then to have us achieve success or be welcomed into places they weren't was really discombobulating and sad. Like there was a loss and they were actually genuinely mourning. And I'm not saying that I figured out how to fix that in a lot of cases, but I just started to talk about it publicly. Like I get your frustration. I feel it. I understand that you feel alienated. I get it. You'd rather see us with 300 people than 3000 people. All of that makes sense, but we're still here. We're still us. We're still available, you know? And I say all of this because again, listening to living in clip, this was such a monumental shift. Like you said, like in your career and how people perceived you and what will come next is this huge 
you know, record for you that even just like the conversation that happened around sexuality, do you feel like your audience has come full circle and repaired the feeling of alienation because they've seen how important and significant you've become? Is it a full circle? Did you reconnect with that part of your audience? Mm. What is the aftermath of these records and this additional two decades since? Yeah, it's so much more fractal than full circle, you know, because mm. it's like my circle, which is spot and intersecting circles. And right. <laughs> but, you know, the other night opening for Brandy for 10,000 people, there was a moment when I played for 10,000 people my shows. Mm. And so I checked in with the ride, you know, that you're talking about. And, you know, it's been a 30 whatever year ride for me. And I realized all the things that I did that made the audience go from 10,000 back down to 1,000, <laughs> you know, <laughs> is meant to be. Because mm. actually I thought this is magnificent, this situation. It's really breathtaking, but it's not what I want. Mm. You know, when I got back down, you know, I think the next night we left that place and I was playing in a barn in Iowa and we were just sweating and digging in and it was this cathartic just unbelievable show the next night. And I think part of me was checking in with, you know, that would be cool on certain levels, but I think this is more where I belong with my art. Closer, sweatier, less pomp and circumstance, less pressure. You know, when you put on a show, as you know, on that level, it's gotta be kind of perfect. They're lighty things. And and then there's part (laughs) where, you know, you go out there with just the acoustic. Whereas, you know, when you're in a barn in Iowa, you know, it's like the HBO special as opposed to just riffing for comedians. You're experimenting and that's not appropriate in that context. And that's what I like to do is just. It's so so powerful. Because you're talking that- about control and autonomy and it's yours. It's your art. It's your show. It's your music. And more people should understand that artists aren't in charge of when they become popular. Right. It is, it's freaking right. luck. Or why? Yeah, that that's necessary, mm. that there's something less authentic about them. Yeah, you know, the thing I can offer about how to maybe weather those criticisms of being the sellout, as you get popular, you get less popular because you're popular. <laughs> is like what you were saying, it really was a coup for me to be on Spin Magazine. Like it had just never happened that somebody with no industry connection was given the key to that chamber. And the way that I weathered the, oh, she's a sellout now, is I kept telling myself, it's not just me. Look at all these people that worked so hard at Righteous Babe Records and my little indie booking agent and my boyfriend manager, all my friends who worked really hard to just make this label exist. And the indie promoters that I stuck with that were in it for the love people, not doing big shows, but I grew them. All those people contributed. And so when you think of it as it's us succeeding, it's all these Mm -hmm. really cool, good hearted counterculture people who are out here just giving their lives to music, who made that cover happen, you know? Mm, So you can criticize me, but I wouldn't turn to them and go, oh, that's gross. No. Yeah. That's a beautiful way to bring it back to the community that was around you at that time. And again, we didn't know any of that. We felt a part of your community and we were just like two like dorks living in the suburbs in Canada. But I felt like that. I felt like, oh my God, she's done it. Like, it's Mm. so amazing. You know, I was going to say too, you know, your comment about having that moment on stage in front of 10,000 people with Brandy and then going and playing your own show your way. When I was listening to Living in Clip, I wrote down patience and I wrote down trust 
And I think one of the things that I hear in you still to this day and and during that period of living in Clip, you trusted your audience and they trusted you. And there's this patience in making music in a way that doesn't have to be choreographed and fixed and done the same way every single night. You are saying to them, we are going to ride this together. How high the ceiling is, what the speaker sounds like, you know, if I'm in a good mood or a bad mood, or if there's some who keeps talking in the middle of the show. You made space for something to happen every Mm. single night that was unusual. And it's probably why people see a billion of your shows. And and I know people who have seen you a million times. It's the unpredictability that you seem to thrive in. And I think that people don't understand Mm -hmm. that sometimes our best, most successful artists are ones who cannot play for 10,000 people every night because there is not space for that. There is no patience and trust in that. And I'm not trying to dig any, I see ourselves as being part of the other side. We are more choreographed. We do try to perfect things. And I know for myself, there's control in that and probably some insecurity in that, that without those things in place that somehow the show won't work. And I'm always reminded when Tegan and I go off the cuff and do something alone, that we are absolutely capable of entertaining 10,000 people alone yeah. and maybe more capable, yeah. you know, maybe more yeah. capable of doing it alone. So I just want to say, I just think you're one of the greats. And I think that you, you know, you're trailblazer. And I'm so grateful you decided to make Living in Clip. I think all of your music is valuable. All of your albums are so beautiful. But to me, it is an important artifact of that time, certainly in our life, but in music history. When I look back at Living in Clip, I use it as an example in my mind of like what is important. And I think like what's important about that album is the world you had already created, the songwriting, the attitude you'd already established. It's so foundational. And like Sarah said, it's a textbook for how to build something like that. And to have done that so early in your career that you have that moment that it's like almost like a cement layer to the foundation that you were laying. And it's so cool because it just showcases so much of what makes you, you, it's such a fun artifact to look back on and to Mm. like experience. It also feels like oddly, like it could be made now. Like the songs are pop songs. You know how many times in the last couple of days, like just playing the record over and over again, where I was like, you could take any one of these songs and I don't mean make it into like a gross radio hit. I mean like any of these songs, straighten it out a little bit. And it's like a massive number one song. I heard the sound of your bike as your wheels hit the gravel and then your engine in the driveway cutting off. And I pushed through the screen door and I stood out on the porch thinking fight, fight, fight at all costs. But instead I let you in just like I've always done. I sat you down and offered you a beer. And across the kitchen table Celebrating the 25th anniversary of Ani DeFranco's Living in Clip this week on Shiro's Radio, that's Gravel. I'm Carmel Holt. Ani is our guest in conversation with guest hosts Tegan and Sarah. Ani, for the 25th anniversary of Living in Clip, do you go back and listen to it? No. I hope before I die to get to the point where I can, like, I'm going to cry now (laughs) as we speak, you know. And Living in Clip is one of my better records, maybe, that I didn't thwart my own songs as much as I have in other moments, but still like trying to go relearn a song or two from there. Just like even a second of the audio puts me in a shame panic spiral. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous and sad. So I'm not a super self-possessed example. I'm also still struggling with myself. Mm. Mm. Do you... 
now this is like a therapy session. Yeah. <laughs> I could not, and you don't have to like go deep about this. I'm interested because I couldn't go back and listen to our early first couple albums and I couldn't look at pictures of high school. And I had a, a very complicated textured trauma of early music coming out, sexuality, stuff with my mom. All of these things happened in this really specific bundle of years. And then when Tegan and I wrote the memoir, I really had to, and, and it was by choice. It wasn't like Tegan did not have to sell me a vacuum to make me write the memoir. I wanted to write the memoir. I wanted to go back and think about that time and think about it really deeply and with a therapist. And I love that time now. Mm. Like I feel proud. I'm with you. Like it's a little bit tough for me to listen to the first albums we made, but you know, thankfully we had the artifacts of like the songs we wrote in high school. We had the demos, the recordings, and I loved listening to them. I found listening to them made me remember this really acute sense of joy. Like when you just figure out you can do this really cool trick and you just want to do it all the time. You're like, I'm going to do the trick at the park and in front of my mom's <laughs> friends and I'm going to go to a party and do it. On the other side of writing the memoir, I felt like I loved myself. Yay. Like I looked at that picture of myself as a teenager and I was like, Sarah was the coolest. Oh my God, Sarah was such a badass. Like it's so cliche, but like I remember sitting in therapy and crying and just being like, I would give anything, anything to go back and spend time with Sarah. Mm. Like I would go back in time and just hang out with her. That time, just all of a sudden, it was like really healing for me. I'm just saying that as like, you don't have to go back and listen to Living in Clip and look at pictures of yourself during that era. But like, there was something holding me back. I have been carrying yeah. all of that. And once I was done carrying it and I like did all of that work, I have to admit, I feel like a different person. I really do. Well, hearing you, Sarah, talk about the transformation that the memoir brought on in your relationship with you makes me really happy. I really <laughs> think that is the essence of emancipation. And when mm -hmm. I get there, mm -hmm. I know 100% sure that that is going to be the most effective, the most giving, the most potent me. Mm -hmm. I know that all that stuff that I have, that all that inhibits my ability to love and appreciate myself of this era or that era or last night, you know, all of that is so in the way of me doing the best work I can do and giving mm -hmm. the most to the world. It's so clear to me. And yet I can't emotionally make myself conquer that. So the further you are on that process, the better work you're going to do in all your relationships, in your music, in everything that you touch, when you have mm -hmm. self-love and appreciation, then you can finally put yourself down and attend and give and show <laughs> yeah. and lift and you have your arms free. I mean, I think my thing with the memoir was maybe similar, but I still am not ready to really confront me. Uh, um, but the memoir for me made me appreciate everybody else more. Mm. Even the people I was mad at, the people I think were horrible <laughs> who hurt me. The process just made me more in touch with, yeah, Ani, but they also loved, they also gave, they mm. are people who struggle, who mm -hmm. have good sides and bad sides and how you two struggled in all those similar ways. So I did feel a similar, like way more love and appreciation for everybody and maybe me, but I've, you know, have work to do still. First of all, I think that is like a huge step. I mean, I still think that's like a tremendous amount of generosity it takes to go back and revisit that work and sort of reframe it. The biggest takeaway for me 
in therapy and writing the book and whatever is just, it meant holding other people accountable for what was done to me, you know, and that I did not want to do. I did not want to feel upset at my mom. I did not want to feel upset at my teachers and the authority figures who let me down. I did not want to continue to feel angry at the music journalists who were so homophobic and sexist. Like I wanted to let all of that go, but I wasn't able to. So it was like, okay, well, I'm tired of carrying it. My arms are tired. And it was such a relief to like let it go and to be able to go back and like really like rejoice and hear the joy in those moments and remember what it felt like, even though those albums are unlistenable to me. So I wasn't able to reconfigure that part of my brain, but I can at least go back and listen to them without feeling sick. Thank you for this therapy session. I, I don't know, know which one of seriously. us should invoice. Should we just split it? Or? We, yeah, I'll pay you. You pay me. <laughs> we'll Can't call it even. I'll send you a yeah. Bitcoin. I don't have any Bitcoins. Yeah, you know, I... I was thinking about being asked for decades on end about being a woman in the music business. And, <laughs> yeah. and I think that my answer over and over again was like, whatever, whatever. But I feel recently, I'm 50 something, one, and I feel like I'm at a place in my life now where you have to get a little bit of distance before you can really appreciate your struggling, you know, half formed self and love that person. And, you know, I feel like menopause, which I've just gone through, has put distance between me and my role as the caretaker and the female and my relationship to men and the male Mm. world and patriarchy. And I don't think I'm alone in this, that menopause gives me a little bit of whatever dudes I'm, it's not, I don't even care anymore. You're so optional Mm. right now, (laughs) you know, like biologically freed in some Mm. chemical way from being even subject to that game. Right. Mm. And I'm noticing that I'm noticing way more because of the distance. I think like we had new crew members, sound guys, dudes, because my pandemic splintered my crew to a thousand pieces. So I just went on the road with a whole new crew. And I have a female road manager who's completely badass and pulls no punches. You know, she's a tough lady, but she's super smart. She's super caring and she's not a bitch, but she is extremely effective, extremely knowledgeable, had to take on way more responsibility because of this rotating crew that doesn't know how it goes. She's fucking on stage knowing how the monitor loom work and how the Dante network and the, and these dudes come in and they just tortured her. She doesn't belong on stage. She's not an engineer. She shouldn't even be speaking to like, and I asked for things in my, can I get more, you know, hundred Hertz on this guitar? And he sort of turns it up and I'm like, did you just turn it up? Yeah. Well, you'll hear more low end because it's louder. Like, Oh man, like every, it's actually freaking everywhere. The Mm -hmm. vibe men still don't many, many still don't fully understand how smart, capable, equal a woman Mm -hmm. is when she's speaking, when she asks for something. You know, the way that Katie was catching their mistakes, helping them out in every way, the leader of the crew, and yet she was punished for it. She had to apologize Mm. for it. She had to negotiate these male egos exhaustingly every day. So it's, I don't know, I feel like it's related. Like I got enough distance from the game somehow, you know, and I think it is through this sort of biological transition of menopause to be like, 
yeah, you know what? I see it everywhere now. And I mm-hmm. really have a sort of an empathy for myself and all women, all people mm-hmm. who are disempowered in the power structure and not respected on the level that they mm-hmm. deserve for whatever reason. I feel like there's levels of empathy and willingness to address it that you can only achieve when you have a little bit more safety. Mm. Sure. I mean, also once you rip the bandaid off, I mean, it's not even a bandaid. It's like once you tear the stitches out or or reopen the scar, it's like, yeah, you don't have to be quiet again about it. Like, you know, and I think it's interesting as you were talking about the crew, I'm like, oh God, crews, like, you know, like finding the wrong people can be such a nightmare. But the good news is is that being outspoken, which Tegan and I were for so long, um, we generally didn't attract those kinds of people because they were like, they hate men or they never shut up about politics. And so we just didn't get those people. Those people did not submit their resumes for us, you know? So like the one benefit of, and I have so much respect for people who didn't want to talk about politics or women in music or, you know, coming out or there was so many years where Tegan and I felt like, oh God, we're the ones always being mouthpieces. But the good thing about being a mouthpiece is that at least everybody knows what your politics are and they know like what you are and who you are and what you will tolerate and accept. And so that is the one benefit to finally being like, you know what, this is how it is. This is what it feels like. These are the types of experiences because I think that you end up repelling or blocking the people who are going to make those experiences (laughs) happen for you. We also like over 10 years ago, after a decade of feeling often like deeply frustrated, we set a new like rule in an organization. And we were like, I'd read some piece about how, you know, social dynamics change between men and women when there's at least 60% to 40% women to men. So I was like, oh, we just need to hire 60% of our team needs to be women. And then it'll change the dynamic on the road. And it did. It was like kind of miraculous. But then yeah. we joked that our last tour was hundred percent women and it was a nightmare. So I was like, okay, too far. Gotta dial it back. <laughs> too far. <laughs> too far. Too many. Totally. Too much. Too much checking. Too much. In. But <laughs> I wanted to say too that this is what popped in my head when you were saying everything you were saying, Ani, which is I guess one of the best parts of looking back. Like writing the memoir is certainly part of that. But I'm looking back at me and what I created. And sure, there's lots of stories about jerks and terrible reviews and all that other stuff. But what outlives all of that, at least in my opinion, is the music. And I think I have no doubt. I don't even need to know the whole story, although I did read your memoir and obviously I'm a big fan. But like the thought that you get to look back at how many albums you've made and how much autonomy and ownership and control and what a voice you've had in the career and how many people have touched like that music and how many people have gone to your shows and how much legacy there is in what you've created and the community you built. Like that's when we win. That's when we win, right? Because it's like, yeah, those people, like you were saying, like, you know, writing helped heal those relationships with people, even if you're not talking to them, because you could see that they contributed and they did a lot. They absolutely did. And that's amazing. But everybody was there because of you. And we couldn't stand where we are 23 years into our career without all the good and the bad that made us. But what is left there in hindsight, looking back, is just the art we made. That's Mm -hmm. it. You know, I, I look at like your legacy of music and how much you've done. And I'm like, you won because look at what you made. It's, it's wild. Yeah, that's sweet. I felt like that on this last run when those moments would happen where the whole room just lifts, you know, yeah. and you, you're in the role with the audience, you know, Yeah. and the intensity of the victory of those moments, like 
Yeah, exactly. It's like all you people tried to bring me down all day. And yet here we are, you know, over the moon. That relationship survived. Mm, yeah, that's amazing. Someday you are going to get hungry and eat most of the words you just Bonnie DeFranco, Tegan and Sarah Quinn, I just want to thank the three of you so much for showing up today and being so open. And this was a beautiful conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us and making this happen. And Anya, really, I mean, when we met over email, it was exciting, but I mean it so sincerely. It's so significant to Sarah and I to finally get to spend some time. I do hope we physically run into you out there or make a run-in happen because it would be very cool. Let's have a (laughs) run-in. Let's have a (laughs) run-in. Let's make it a barn in Iowa. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you guys, my pleasure. Absolutely. And Carmel, you're the best. Awesome. Because everyone harbors a secret hatred for the prettiest girl. Many thanks and happy birthday to Ani DeFranco. Happy birthday to our guest hosts, Tegan and Sarah. And happy birthday to Living in Clip. The deluxe edition is available now on Righteous Babe Records. Shiro's Radio is produced by me, is mixed and mastered by Kelly Drake with production assistance from Emma Philippos. Our original theme music is by Lucius. Shiro's is also a nationally syndicated radio show. Visit shirosradio.com to find out more. Please do support our work. I've got Patreon. I've got merch. Check that all out in the Shiro shop and keep in touch on Instagram and Twitter. Find me at Carmel Holt or at Shiro's Radio. And also leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast. That helps us grow and bring you more of your favorite Shiro's. Until next time, remember, music is our superpower. I'm Carmel Holt. Thanks so much for listening. Spend your eyes and look closer. I'm not you and your ambition. I am 32 flavors and then some And I'm beyond your peripheral vision So you might want to turn your head Cause someday you might find you are starting And eating all of the words that you've been